Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello, and welcome to part two of two, where me and Drac will continue on with our exploration of air defence at sea. Enjoy. I think, I think to be honest, it's with the larger navies, it's a combination of looking inwards and ignoring the smaller navies, albeit that the French and the Italian navies are actually now coming up to, well, and have been for a while, of a fairly considerable size. But also academia generally, it has this annoying habit occasionally of just looking at whoever's biggest and going, right, what are they doing? We must do this. But if you are the big navy, then your academia is basically telling you do more of the same or improve what you've got because you're the biggest navy. Therefore, clearly, you must have the best, um, mm -hmm. which isn't actually necessarily always the case. It, it can Ooh, lighting really just went down. Um, it can sometimes be the case, but I personally wouldn't count on it a lot of the time because, again, looking back at World War Two um and thinking of of what happened there we we obviously go on about the um the highly advanced systems that the royal navy had and the u.s navy had and rightly so there, there were some yeah. fairly nice advanced systems in the possession of, of both those navies but what happened when the dutch ships showed up the royal navy effectively descended on them like a pack of seagulls and took everything that was nice and shiny and new off of them so it was like the Hazemeyer or Hazemeyer mount was dutch yeah the few the few the dutch vessels that were left in the netherlands the the germans pounced on and basically took a um an, a, a semi-working version of the schnorkel off of them and uh and the took and and then yeah, you look at other other things as well, like the Italian again, the Italian Navy World War Two actually had an absolutely wonderful uh triaxially stabilized uh mounting uh, similar to the Hazemeyer mount, but for even heavier AA guns. Slight pity it didn't quite work. But they tried, at least. Whereas the the five inch and five point two five inch and uh, later on three inch guns didn't quite go the same route as sort of things like the Italian 90 mil. Um, and so the, the, the smaller navies can come up with an awful lot of insight, but if you ignore them because, well, they're physically smaller, they don't have as many battleships, carriers, cruisers, destroyers, submarines, missiles, etc. You risk looked at popping your head up in 20 years and realizing oh actually these guys have considerably better tech than we do well um i'll just clarify the vehicle i'm talking about is the f43 f4 fv430 bulldog series the fv432 was the one i was going not sure why i was adding in one and they entered service in production started on them in 1962 so they are roughly analogous with the phalanx, and they are still mm -hmm. in the service. Mm. But here's the point. The ones of them in service now have a decidedly more firepower than the ones which came into service. Theoretically. And a lot more side armor. Mm. But it's this is just... It's like the Danish Stanflex system. The Americans mm. try and copy it for the LCS, and they miss what was the key component of that, which was there was very strict, very tightly controlled rules about the modules, and you had to conform to them, otherwise you didn't get paid. Yes, they had teething troubles, but none in the way that the mm. Americans have had, where they've had all this sort of... And you can say half the trouble the LCS is down to the specification for the absurdly high speed for the size of hull and the hull forms that they want to get and secondly it's the 
modularity system, which was supposed to be make them the Swiss Army knife, uh, just hasn't shown up. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. It's about balance. And this always seems to be forgotten when it comes to navies by all sorts of people, whether it be the sort of the regular guy on the street, the enthusiast, the academic, or the navies themselves. You have to have a balanced approach. And and don't get me wrong, we're not saying the US Navy and the Royal Navy, etc., are technologically behind these small and medium-sized navies. Or negligent or bad no. or anything like that. They are ahead in certain circumstances. I mean, you're not going to see the Italian Navy or the French Navy field a railgun or a point defense laser anytime soon. Um, that's almost certainly going to be an American ship. Lasers, depending on some of the tech, that might actually be a British ship. But the, the railguns, I think it's going to be a competition between the Chinese and the Americans. Um with and, BAE doing a lot of the work for the Americans, so yeah. you might well see it eventually on the British ship as well. But if you want to, and if you want to build a carrier, well, the Americans have built more carriers than everybody else put together in the last half century. Of course, they they have the advantage in that that, that regard. But just because a, the large navies or larger navies have technological advances in some aspects, it doesn't mean they have them in all aspects and so what a sensible navy should be doing is rather than just focusing on what do we think we need and what can what have we got and what can we iterate on they should be looking across the world and going this navy has this that's good that navy has that that's good let's adopt all sorts of things i mean obviously we don't have particularly good relations with the russians at the moment but let's face it if you want an anti-shipping missile in a completely neutral environment, you're going to buy Russian. Yeah. Um, if you want to say, look at say heavy anti-aircraft, heavy and uh, gun-based anti-aircraft and anti-missile defense systems, the Italians seem to be the people who are that who are the furthest ahead on that. Although the Bofors 40 millimeter is still, as always, very very good. Hmm. Um. And then when you, I mean, you you can look at all all over the place. I mean, until the introduction of the F thirty five, the Rafale was probably by far and away the single best carrier based fighter um, fighter and strike platform. Albeit, you know, there weren't that many of them, and you can't deploy that many of them off of Charles de Gaulle. But if you compare a Rafale side by side with a Super Hornet, I'm pretty sure the Rafale's going to come out on top. Um, and things like um, Storm Shadow, we obviously Storm Shadow's in the possession of the British Armed Forces, but the French have Scalp N, which is the sea-launched version, and so that's a fairly fairly substantial anti-shipping missile that is stealthy. Or Norwegian, the naval strike missile, which yep. is also mm -hmm. fairly decent. Yeah, available if you can't buy Russian. There you go. You've got two options. Yeah. Look, look back in uh, in the Cold War and how many people bought Penguin. Yes, in its various iterations. So the Norwegians yeah. do produce good anti-ship missiles. Hmm. Shockingly enough, they seem to have a distinct motivation to <laughs> sink in enemy shipping. They have bad bad experiences with those things turning up off their shores. Yes, they produce very capable anti-ship missiles. Yeah, mm. but we, we we could go on and on with various what various other small navies have come up with that's really nice and neat. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it's even... like SSKs. I, mm. I am still not quite sure why the Australians are buying French. I'm sure they have a good reason, but if I'd been buying an SSK, I think I would have probably gone... Well, the main ones you're wanting are either are Japanese or the various designs which are broadly speaking from what I call the German Baltic school. Yeah. And then, and yeah, and if you want to look at to be honest, if you want to look at air defense warfare ships, the ship that's carrying the most sensor systems and missiles is a South Korean vessel. Um, yeah. So and what close in weapon systems is she fitted with? I think she's fitted with phalanx isn't she again. Probably because they, the South Koreans, for rather obvious reasons, do love to buy um, a lot of American 
I mean, the, the, the Sejong the Great basically takes the Arlie Burke and, and feeds it steroids until it's to the point of bursting. Um, yeah, it, it, but again, this is the point. If you're spending that much money on missiles... No, on they've fire, actually got, they actually use Goalkeeper and Ram. So they've gone for a missile, slightly heavier cannon combo. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, to be honest, I do like the Ram launchers. They are... They are they are they are a pretty nice way of getting a decent point defense missile system on a space that doesn't actually demand too much more from your ship than the uh, phalanx does. But honestly, I, I you see the thing is it's always with me when I'm talking about missiles near a carrier. I always worry about FOD, mm. and the more sensitive you have your aircraft be, the more of a thing, and the more you will have to worry about FOD. Yeah. So this is the, this is why I prefer to go the heavy gun route mm-hmm. where you can control where the FOD yeah. goes. But when you've got your escorts, you might want to consider something like a RAM battery to yes. supplement your guns. But or yeah, you I mean... probably fit a RAM, launch, a RAM battery in mm-hmm. a 40 millimeter mount. Let's be honest, if they have a yeah. radar one side of the guns, then they have the guns in the middle and a RAM the other. Hey, hey, quadruple 40 millimeter and RAM pain. <laughs> Yes, I mean, so it's, I mean, this thing is just, just going over some of, some of those systems. You can think about the latest and greatest stuff that is in common service with the larger navies, Arleigh Burke, Flight 3s, I guess, now coming up, and uh, Type 45 in the Royal Navy. And you can look at. Type 26 coming along. Coming along. But you can you can look at look at their capabilities and then just think about some of the capabilities that we've been mentioning now from various navies and think well most of them with the exception of the Russians are either allied or at least on friendly terms they're probably not going to object all that much if we want to buy some systems off of them at which point why not do that. Because a ship that puts together the best of various allied navies in terms of its technology, okay, yeah, it might, because of the various all-up weights, might come out 500,000 tons heavier than you thought it was going to be. And you'll, ha- you'll have to modify the design as a result. We not tons heavier than you. But no. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> that would be a few aircraft carriers heavier <laughs> yes. than you were planning your yeah. frigate to be. But I mean, if you if you if that you're... would definitely be an all singing, all dancing <laughs> something. Yes, and, and and of course, you, as I say, you would have to modify the design when you're taking into account. Okay, we're going to incorporate all these other weapon systems. Modify the design whilst you're still drawing it up. Don't just go, oh yes, well we're going to use exactly the same hull and try and cram everything else. Well, that doesn't work. US 1930 destroyer design pre Fletcher class shows exactly why that's a bad idea. Um, but. Think of how much more effective those ships would be. Type 31 is a classic example. You know, it, we, we, both America, both the Royal Navy and the US Navy are buying foreign design ships in terms of their hulls. The Royal Navy is fitting it out as a presence vessel and close and basically close in air defense vessel, anti swarm vessel. And I know people are going to probably tell me, oh, no, no, this is not the profile of Type 31. Look at its weapons fit. That's how you know what a ship is for. What are its sensors and what's its weapon fit? Do not... There is a... um, Oh, who's the character? In... She's a character in The Expanse. Um, Kristen Avasara. Oh, yes. It always says, you look at what the person does, not what they're saying when you're having a conversation. You, You judge by what they do. It's the same with ships. You look at uh, what navies say. What a navy says it's building a ship for, what everyone tells you it's building a ship for, is one thing, and it could be truth. (laughs) But look at their weapons fit, and that will tell you what they're actually thinking about. And this is, again, why I'm so surprised at them using three single mounts, a single 57mm, two single 40mm, and you're going... I can see why you're building those. Uh, you are building this. Why you've got this in there? But why are you going for single mounts? I know. Uh, I will get told the maintenance and all this stuff will come out. And oh, we've got. We can engage three targets. It doesn't matter. 
the, the thing is, again, if you're using those individual mounts to each engage an individual target, I'd have thought that was even more reason to have multiple barrels. And to be perfectly honest, the it's easier to maintain argument. The big alarm bell that that sets off in my head is late 20s, early 30s, the 10-year the rule in the Royal Navy and for the whole of the British Armed Forces. Look how close that got to completely screwing over the British Armed Forces for World War II. Yep. Um, ease of maintenance is a peacetime argument for an armed force that doesn't expect to actually have to fight anyone seriously for a good long time. It's not the argument of an armed force that is prepared to drop everything and go and kick a door in at five minutes' notice. And you can look back at World War II and you can see exactly this because there was an awful lot of stuff that was installed pre-World War II in, well, every navy except in, the, in almost all of the Allied navies. The Japanese, the Italians and the Germans are all to various extents knew that they were spoiling for a fight, which is why, for example, despite the fact that the German, most of the German boiler systems on their ships were effectively two seconds away from exploding, um, they still went with these ridiculously complex high pressure systems to get the performance out of it because, yes, it was a complete maintenance nightmare, but it gave them certain advantages in terms of speed. And what's more important when you're actually fighting? Speed, not oh yeah, well, our engines will last for the next 5,000 miles. doesn't matter if in the next 500 miles you're going to end up on the bottom of the ocean. Um, and going, actually going back to the Hazemai amount we were talking about, was it a maintenance hog? Yes. Yes. <laughs> the, the mechanics hated it with a burning passion, especially <laughs> when everyone in the mid, mid, middle part of World War II was like, we will have many of these all over the place in places that we never thought we were going to put an anti-aircraft mount. But nobody, apart from the mechanics, cared about that because it was a more effective weapon system and when there are again Luftwaffe or Regia Marina or Imperial Japanese Navy attack aircraft come screaming out of the sun at you nobody cares whether or not you've had to spend the last six hours fine-tuning and tweaking it for the sixth time this week all they care about is do I have a stable firing platform to shoot back at the people who are trying to blow me to pieces and will it blow them to pieces quickly yes Probably yesterday Mm. You know, this is the thing. This is what uh, when I hear some of these things come out, I go, "Yeah." I and the trouble is, you can't. You have this argument, this person making this case, and you sit there and go, "You are making a perfectly legitimate argument for peacetime." Mm. But excuse me, wars happen usually when we're not having fun. Yeah, no, very few people walk into a war that they were expecting. And um, even the people I, who are expecting war usually find it shows up at a time that they weren't expecting. <laughs> Witness pretty much everybody in World War II. Um, or the Falklands War or everything. Yeah. The trouble is there have been so many... Wars have been so often by choice for the last 20-odd years mm -hmm. in that the West has chosen when it's going to get involved. Mm. Not necessarily if it's going to get involved because often there have been very good reasons for it to get involved. But it has chosen to what extent it's got involved, how it's done it, when it's done it, what it's done it with. And I think that has bred to an extent an expectation that when you turn up, you will have a full task force. You will have air superiority. You will achieve it somehow. And now they are looking at threats which they might not have it. The trouble is their mindset still has the mindset still has that confidence, that idea. Or when I hear people talking about cyber mm. and I sit there and go, so the, the trouble is with cyber is I want to have those capabilities. But if I use them, I have to expect my enemy to use them back at me. So it's kind of like a deterrent, no first use thing, because if I use them to attack your power plants, why aren't you going to use them to attack my power plants? And yet, say, I do manage to hack your ships, but in the nicest way, are you honestly telling me that you are, that a Navy is going to run a system where they are going to have any way possible, any decent Navy is going to have a system where they're going to run any decent way possible that 
their fire control or radar systems are hooked up to the internet. Because mm-hmm. if they are, then I seriously would hope that those admirals would hand in their resignations today. Yeah. It's, um, and, and to be honest, I, I can see some of the arguments that people might make against this, the, the idea of actually having systems that you probably could use in war rather than making flashy PowerPoints about how it's all perfectly fine. But, and, and some of them are legitimate in the case of what's happening at the moment. It's like, I mean, we, we've seen, for example, in the US 7th Fleet, what happens when you just overload your crew with all these little bits of paperwork and training and all sorts of other things on top of what's supposed to be their day job everyone gets tired everyone makes mistakes and then nasty things happen i'm starting to think that every ship in the u.s seventh fleet should go to get go to sea with actually an expanded administrative bureaucratic corps to deal with all the paperwork for everyone else on board but the thing this is the thing that's not an argument against having more slightly more complex and therefore slightly have uh, heavier on maintenance weapon systems that's an argument for looking at the for lack of a better word much as i hate it corporate culture that you have aboard and working out when did you turn the people who are supposed to be your national first line of defense into a bunch of pen pushers it's, and who, it, who did that and when can we shoot them It's not just your corporate culture, it's your report structures. If you look Mm. at companies, they religiously, every five years or sometimes more often than that, go through their report structures and see what reports actually uh, take the place of good oversight and which reports are not used anymore. Now, I'm not saying that every company actually does that. They're supposed to. That's the good business practice. But a lot of the good companies do. And... When you look at the militaries, you go, are you? Are you honestly doing that? Are you sure you need those people to be filling out all those reports? Mm. Are you and, sure uh, those and, reports are you, uh, aren't just taking the place of having a good training scenario, of having... Uh, here's what's one of the things you've done, and one of the interesting conversations I've had with a retired Royal Navy officer, but I'm not too long ago retired Royal Navy officer, who pointed out when he was a junior officer, the captain used to take time to do the training. Then the captain got covered in a lot of reports and had to start filling in a roll of reports. So then they had to replace the training of the officers that the captain used to engage in talking, taking the time to do that with, you guessed it, the junior officers having to fill reports to show they've done reading or they, they understand these things without the captain. And he sort of said, go, hang on. So what they've done is they gave the commanders a load of reports they had to fill in, found they couldn't do the traditional job, and so added even more reports to it. Yeah. And and even if there's even if there are additional reports that need to be done, because let's face it, ships are more technologically advanced now, even where there are necessary reports, do they have to be as long and as detailed all the time? Do you have to write out in triplicate exactly what what the precise status of x system or whatever it is or can you just go tick it works also do you have to put the report so it has to it, it is going to sound strange again does it have to be the officer or the mm. senior chief who fills out that report every time or can you push some of the tick boxing down to a watch person a person who's the head of the watch or or lower if they've got the appropriate training and skills yeah but uh, and and this is the thing it's like if your argument against having a more combat effective ship is that will affect our reporting and paper paperwork then your reporting and paperwork is the thing that needs to be revised and cut not your weapon systems and if if that means adding a couple more like adding a few more people to the crew as well, then do so and obviously make sure you design your ship so they can actually accommodate. But yeah, it's, it's this, it's, I know that people say history is cyclical, but it really is in this case, you, you, you can see the same attitude. It comes and goes and comes and goes. And 
anytime there's a prolonged period of, of peace, i.e. lack of serious warfare, it creeps in. And a lot of people point and say, this is going to be a very bad idea when it comes to wartime. And sometimes you hit wartime and everyone's like, oh, and then you lose a lot of men and a lot of ships very quickly. And hopefully you can recover. Or if you're really lucky, someone will come in and shake everything up immediately beforehand. And I mean, the, the much as it sometimes gets exaggerated, the late 19th century Royal Navy is probably actually a good example of that with the obsession with spit and polish and paintwork, as opposed to gunnery practice and manoeuvring. Um, if, I mean, can you, can you imagine the captains of Nelson's Navy making the, the mistake that Camperdown did with Admiral Tryon's manoeuvre? Just no. religi religiously following orders instead of, oh, that's what he intends. How about we don't ram the flagship? Um and and the same thing with the gunnery of well yes we could do gunnery practice but every time we do gunnery practice it ruins the paintwork so we won't we'll just practice loading um in that particular case the royal navy was fortunate that it had admiral fisher show up at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries and kick them out of the worst of those habits but even then some of that kind of very dogged linear we must report to the officers because that's what the paperwork says we must do because that's what peacetime has told us we should do some of that persisted well into World War One, and it cost the Royal Navy a fair bit, yeah. um, both in ships lost and in opportunities missed. They got much better at it by World War Two. Very II. quickly by getting, and even World War Two, they'd had it sneak in, and then you find some things happen in the 1930s. Various mm. officers achieve various positions. You have Cunningham in the Mediterranean Fleet. You have Henderson as Third Sea Lord. Mm. You have all sorts of officers turn up who mm. basically don't. And you also have a whole rows of, I would call them the destroyer officers because the Royal Navy's almost had this group that have been lucky. It's had this group of officers who have been off in these small ships who just aggressively prepare for war. Like, I don't know, uh, like the uh, like, like some sort of, you mm. know, uh, constantly going, there could be war tomorrow. We don't want it, but when it comes, we'll be ready. We'll have every gun ready to go. And they are... It's no surprise that quite so many destroyer officers end up the ones running the fleets by the end of World War II. In not just the Royal Navy, in the US Navy, in pretty much every Navy around the world that is still fighting efficiently by 1945, the officers who've ended up in charge, quite a lot of them, a very healthy majority of them, come from the destroyer arms. Yeah. And again, if you look at modern forces... Where are the junior? Uh, where are the commands where you can stick aggressive junior officers to just keep them ready for war? OPVs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's. I think this is this is the thing at the at the moment we we are in this this phase where everyone's obsessed more about reports and getting things absolutely spot on perfect for all the paperwork. Um, on a larger scale, obviously, I'm not not impugning any specific specific commanders, specific ships, etc. There, because there is always going to be a variance. But there is HMS there does... Dragon. <laughs> but there again, she has a dragon painted on her, yes. so that, that probably affects things. But that there there is there is does seem to be this general attitude, especially amongst the larger fleets, of as we've said, no, we don't want this on because it'll be more maintenance intensive. No, we don't want to do this training because that'll cut into the captain, first officer, junior officers, or crewman's ability to file all their paperwork and reports on time. It's like, no, we've been through this before. We know it doesn't work. Stop it before you get someone killed. I'd say one of the problems is we are now further from the Falklands War than the Falklands War was from World War Two. Mm. Think about that. World War II ended in 1945. The Falklands War took place in 1982, which was 37 years later. It's 2020, soon to be 2021. That's 38, 39 years. We are approaching the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War. And trust me, I'm, I was involved in organizing a conference for the 37th anniversary. I'm probably going to be involved in organizing one for the 40th. And I, and I am very happy to do that. But there is also part of me sitting there looking at, at some of the current 
Offerson going, you've had a long time where whilst you've had exercises and you've had all the tribulations of peacetime deterrence, there are now some very real threats coming and it's not just you who has this mentality. It's also your potential opposition. And that's what scares me because we're making these decisions, which me and Drac mm. are sitting here and we are going through and we hope we are eloquently putting across with probably a little bit of humor and some mm. jocularity because that's the Bill Trump style why these decisions need to be thought about, why a lot of this stuff needs to be thought about. Mm. But we're also, it, it, it's not just infecting procurement of air defense, it's also infecting how things are managed when there are confrontations at sea. I worry that officers are going to be far more worried about the paperwork they're going to have to deal with than necessarily the exact handling of it because how much of it has been passed on the experience of how you deal with this. And it's one of the things I notice is that, let's say we're talking about the Royal Navy sending ships into the Black Sea, etc. And I'm not sure if Drac has had a similar context, but have you noticed that it seems to be the same batch of officers who keep seeing to be drawn from to go and run these operations and go mm -hmm. out there? It's almost as if there isn't that larger pool of officers that they trust to do it yeah and the, i'm not saying there's anything bad with the royal navy trust me i have great faith and respect for the royal navy officer corps and i have great but i i'm noticing the same names keep popping up in places and the thing is that ultimately there's two strands to this one is if you don't prepare your ships you will lose your ships you don't prepare them adequately if you lose your ships you're very likely going to lose the war and if you lose the war you are going to lose an awful lot more than than just a portion of your armed forces and even if you win you're going to win at a significant cost and yes you might learn lessons from it but did you have to pay the price to learn those lessons um and that's Especially just when you've already bled before for those mm. lessons and this and that's thing. just yeah and this is and this is just the financial part you also have to look at the human cost because these are people's lives on the line you're putting hundreds possibly thousands of men and women on the front line you're telling them to defend the national interest whatever that might happen to be at any given time thousands of miles away from home they, they, there isn't an easy option to come back. They're in the middle of the single most hostile environment known to mankind short of outer space. And to be perfectly honest, out, outer space doesn't at least have hurricanes. Um, Both of the flying fighting variety and the mm, natural variety. Yeah. And you're saying to these people, right, we, we whoever we are, politicians etc back at home maybe putting you in harm's way at very short notice are, are these politicians and such like going to sit back and just uh, well these people are expendable i don't think that's really acceptable every I single every single one of those people is and I've said I said this recently on on my discord when i made the uh, uh, november 11th uh, announcement Every single one of those people out there is somebody's son or daughter or father or mother or husband or wife or brother or sister or friend. And they will look after each other as best they can, but they can only look after each other to the extent of the systems you have provided to allow them to do so. Because harsh language will not stop a zircon. Um, and if we don't prepare properly, there'll be an awful lot of people coming back who could otherwise have come back. We look at the, and we, we can see this through all the, the recent conflicts. We look at the Falklands. Yes, 
we collectively uh, as a, as a, the UK we won the Falklands but how many people in how many ships didn't come home because the government didn't pay for the proper defenses on those ships imagine if those 40 millimeters which have been which when vanguard had been uh, deactivated if those 40 millimeter guns had been moved on to mm. i don't know what was being built around the same time oh yes the round table lsls mm. imagine if they'd all had a couple of those 40 millimeters one put either end mm. or a uh, certain and given the appropriate systems to support them yeah doesn't need to have been fancy and that's and that's just the people who didn't come back on top of that you've got to take into account the people who came back changing injuries be they physical or mental and the people who had to watch all that happen because even if you come back even if you come back from something like the Falklands or Iraq or Afghanistan or Serbia, Bosnia, Libya, wherever else people have ended up fighting and dying in the past few decades. Even if you come back relatively stable and with all four limbs intact, a lot of the time you'll have seen things you really would rather have not. And that's putting it mildly. And you'll have done things you'd really rather have not in the name of survival. Mm. Again, putting it very mildly. And how much of that damage is down to the fact that again governments politicians who never have to go out there they they never put their lives on the line and half the time they don't even accept putting their political careers on the line they just insist that they were right and these are the people who are sending those people out there to suffer those things and I personally <laughs> i mean personally I think if you're going to send people out there to fight and die on because of some decision that you've made that isn't an existential threat to the national survival, you should probably put a helmet on and go out there at a, at a minimum um, and without having half a division around you as a special bodyguard. But even if you but if you're not going to do that, you can at least have the decency to pony up the cash and the research and development to give your forces the systems they need to do their job the best and when we go back to the for I'll talk about Falklands again the amount of times i hear people talk about well they were expecting a cold war they're expecting to fight russia they design the systems around that even if you're expecting to fight russia there is no re even if you were thinking that presuming a war any war would go nuclear very quickly and therefore it wouldn't matter anything having these things that's quite a big assumption to make. It's kind of like the current assumptions about cyber warfare and other things. Mm. You're making huge assumptions that war is going to go one way. And whilst it could, there is no one saying if Cold War hadn't, hadn't happened, it couldn't mm. have gone hot and wouldn't have been very, very nasty and very nuclear very mm. quickly. I personally doubt it would have got nuclear that quickly, if at all, because I have a feeling that deterrent would have still been deterring, because mm. if you're fighting a war of conquest, no one wants to end up the king of a parking lot. But leaving that to one side, there are rational wars aren't started by rational people, so mm. I have to accept they could be irrational and silly. But we're presuming now, and I agree, cyber is a threat. Neither of us are saying cyber isn't a threat. But they are there is an, almost an assumption now that you don't have to worry about these things. You have to worry about cyber when actually I would say you have to worry about both because the true the truism of war is very rarely does one system replace another. Quite often they end up operating alongside each other. I air power didn't get rid of land power and sea power. Mm. Submarines have not taken out the entire surface fleet. And the other thing to bear in mind is when was the last war that actually went anything close to what people were expecting was the probably last time there was the, even a single battle which went close to the way i think that the last time that happened was the anglo zanzibar war and that was largely because the zanzibarian rebels had exactly one armed yacht to their name and that was the, so that was a bit of a foregone conclusion but if you... To be fair, the the issues with getting a decent beer supply out mm -hmm. there were quite terrible. Yeah, but if you if you look at like any actually any war of the twentieth and twenty first century, going sort of doing a really rapid run from nineteen hundred, 
Boer War, on paper, British Empire should have rolled completely over the Boers, ended up in a quagmire, ended up with literally hundreds of thousands of men fighting all across South Africa in a war that took forever. And okay, the British Army learned a lot of important lessons from it, but a a good chunk of them were ones that um, everyone else could have told them a long time ago. Russo-Japanese War, again, on paper, Russia should have rolled straight over Japan. Japan won. Um, World War One, in theory, the Royal Navy should have swept the seas of the high seas fleet in about six weeks flat. And then some German generals in Paris would have asked, while sipping schnapps under the Eiffel Tower, so what happened at sea exactly and where's our food gone? And in the end, it turned out the German army wasn't quite able to roll over the French and the British. But equally speaking, the sea war ended up with a very long staring match and a couple of big fist fights. The Germans just refused to come out and fight. And that mm. frustration is arguably what led to a ha- a, about half a dozen of the things which happened in World War Two. The Royal Navy being frustrated over mm. their enemy not coming out to fight yeah. them. And then, well, and then this again, World War Two. World War Two runs on the calculation, at least in Britain, that... We will be fighting alongside the French. We will probably be facing the Germans. We might also be facing the Italians, or we might both, and probably with the Dutch, have to go and defend our interests in the Pacific. They end up without the French and having to fight all three. And without the Dutch. <laughs> yes. Um, or the Norwegians being neutral. Mm. All these things mm. were presumed. Yep. And then Korea... Everyone had pretty much disarmed and assumed that World War Two was it and there would everything else would be nuclear. Turned out Korea wasn't a nuclear war. Everyone had to very rapidly get air forces and navies and men back into ground pounders, grab back into service and run over there. And um, half the problems that you had orig- you had to begin with were because of the way they taken down artillery, because you didn't need heavy artillery anymore for divisions because it couldn't move fast enough to keep up with them. Mm. What did they rapidly do? Re-art heavy artillery started appearing out of everywhere. Divisional artillery strength grows dramatically mm-hmm. because you need it, because mm. you need that artillery to deal with the mass coming at you. Yeah. And then because you look the at... Chinese don't understand the concept of only a few hundred guys. Yeah. And then you look at um, Vietnam. On paper, it's a handful of communist rebels versus the other half of the country plus the biggest military power on the planet. We all know how well that ended um, and how long it took. Then we have the Falklands War. The Argentinians launched the Falklands War on the rather questionable assumption that the British either couldn't or wouldn't fight back. And yeah, and the British launched into it with a Navy that, as Commander George pointed out, had largely been designed for running 14-day convoy escort ops in the North Atlantic and not a south atlantic carrier war that lasted the better part of half a year um yeah and also quite a lot of equipment which was going because again they thought the royal marines were only going to be to be a light raiding force mm. where am i hearing this from again yes oh oh it's still happening mm-hmm. oh carry on track i'm gonna have a moment yeah and then we've got well then we've got the gulf war um which, to be honest, the Gulf War was saved largely by the fact that um, the Iraqi army, although it, this is the thing, again, everyone launched into the Gulf War thinking it was going to be the worst mass casualty event since World War Two, on the basis that the Iraqis had had, what was it, seven years worth of the Iran-Iraq War? And the initial collapse of some of the Saudi boy units seemed to bear that out in the fact that the Iraqis crushed them quite hilariously. Um as it turned out, it just turns out the Saudis were absolutely rubbish at anything resembling armed conflict. Um, we won't say they still are, but has anyone seen what's been going on in, in <laughs> various parts of Yemen? Yes. You can't even beat half of Yemen with all the money in the world. I mean, to be honest, the Saudis should, should be really winning that war by just dropping dollar wadges of dollar bills on everything. Just well, make it physically well, impossible to move. Maybe <laughs> that should be cheaper than what they're actually doing. Yeah. <laughs> Just build build a wall out of dollar bill pallets and just wall your enemy in. They've got enough. Um, in fact, I don't even know if the US has enough dollar bills to keep them supplied, but never mind. Um, but then you went in, then, then the Western coalition went into that war expecting this mass casualty event, which didn't really happen, at least on the Western side. Um, we then get to Gulf War II, 
actual in the interim you have the whole um thing in serbia bosnia and all bosnia, that, that. Oh. yeah where everyone went in oh yes high technology we will crush them with air power and it turned out that a couple of inflatables a toaster and some wooden pan paneling um did a remarkably good job at distracting everybody from hitting anything of any importance. There is the classic example of Kosovo, where mm. they're bombing for days on end. They're going, yes, there's no Serbian force. And the Serbian, the Serbians say we're going to pull out, and they count the tanks going out, and they actually think the, Serb the Serbians are actually pulling out more tanks mm. than they thought they had. Yeah, and they realise they haven't actually hit a single mm. one. Yeah, not and, a and single it, one. Nada. And, and again, but in in that war. We, everyone goes into it thinking high precision weapons will take out the military the the era of the mass uh, targeting of civilians and civilian infrastructure is over and it turns out pretty much the only thing that brings serbia to its knees is when you go back to we're targeting the civilian infrastructure which is supposedly an evil and horrible thing that only the luftwaffe and the russians would ever do um we've done it a lot of times in the past yeah. we've been doing it since we've had air power targeting mm. civilian infrastructure works yeah. In fact, honestly, if we'd just taken out the German bridges and railways at the beginning of World War II, they could never have launched an invasion of France. It would have been a most... Instead of dropping leaflets, mm -hmm. how about drop a few bombs on bridges? <laughs> yeah. And then you've got Gulf War II. Um, everyone says, yes, it'll be an easy military cakewalk uh, we, we've missed out something because at the end of Kosovo I remember there was a, a point where James Blunt yes we're talking about the the singer stopped World War Three. oh yes when some idiot decided the Russians to shoot moved, the Russians <laughs> yes because there was an American general who was hyped up on victory the Russians had moved into the airbase and there was a feud going on on the radio between that Wes Clark and Mike Jackson <laughs> over whether or not uh James Blunt should fire and instead he used the diplomacy of we have water, you don't have. And also I have my guitar and I'm going to keep singing you until <laughs> you give in. To be honest, that's probably actually a more <laughs> more horrific uh, assault than um, than thirty millimeter rounds. But yeah, yeah that, the <laughs> but less you said can't it. declare war over bad singing. No, well, actually, you probably no, could in South America. Good. They declared that war over football songs there. Aren't that bad? No. But, but I probably you... shouldn't be emitting that with my man card around, but, you know. <laughs> but um, it's a good opportunity for Weird Al parodies. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and then you've got Gulf War Two. Everyone says, yes, well, based on the previous war, it will be an easy cakewalk victory. We'll roll in. We'll take over everything. Everyone will be glad and happy to see us. And uh, eight years later. Yeah. So We've also skipped over Afghanistan, which is... Pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Except longer. Yeah. I mean... Syria? To Libya, fair, yeah. I mean, Syria and Libya are just examples of the people that at least have at least there learned that maybe sending in ground troops and expecting everyone to welcome them with open arms isn't such a good idea. Um, I honestly wonder though if that's only thanks to Donald. Uh, and I, I, I'm I am shocked at my saying this, so please do not read anything in this. But I'm always saying is that thanks to Donald Trump with Syria because. Pretty much everyone else other than him wanted to send in far more troops. Because that would have ended well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Afghanistan, I mean, to be honest, when was the last time anyone actually successfully took took over Afghanistan? The Soviet Union didn't manage it. Even the British Empire gave it up as a bad idea. Um, we just kept them supplied with guns and ammunition. So the Soviet Union came south, they get scored in the quagmire. I think the, the last the last time anyone successfully pacified Afghanistan for any significant length of time was Alexander the Great, and that's mainly because he just marched through and stabbed everybody who said otherwise. Plus, he was called Alexander. Yes. Well, and as we know from inherent both of advantage. experience, that is an inherent advantage. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, stabbing absolutely everybody who disagrees with you being there is no longer viewed as an acceptable method of war. So yeah, stay maybe just stay away from Afghanistan. Um, it worked so well, though. Mm -hmm. um, but then, and then you've got so, and so that brings us up to today when everyone's looking at China and going, "Oh yes, well, the Chinese are building up this large military and everything, but we are obviously the superior people, and therefore we have the we have the bigger military at the moment. We we have the superior technology, we have the more experience, etc." We don't have the bigger military. We're relying on the superior technology. Let's yeah. Let's be clear about one. Yeah. We're relying on superior tech. 
and then and then everyone's sitting there going well therefore it will be an easy victory they better not try anything and we'll just watch the watch them flail around and everything very very much shades of um, how everyone was treating the japanese at the beginning of world war ii um except that yes. china's a considerably bigger opponent so yeah apologies for those of you who probably knew all the things i was going to say on all those different wars but i think it belabors the point that on the basis of the past 120 years of warfare why does anybody believe we know how the next war's gonna go yeah this is the point you and i are history buffs everyone says if you want to understand the future look to the past and even we're sitting here going look it could have this game, but require this. It could require this. It could require this. The only thing we can be sure of is it's probably going to be a mixture of all this. So better be prepared. Mm. I have the heavy closing weapon system, have the cyber, have the AI, have it all. There isn't anything you can really avoid. There is not one capability you can honestly go, you know what? We don't need that. May maybe... Hang on, though. You do need a flare gun. That mm. could be useful for so many things. I'm, I'm trying to think of things you can get rid of. Flare uh, gun is a good way of signalling an attack without having to use electronic transmissions. And flare gun you can also use to take out people if you really mm. are annoyed with them. Boarding action. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, this is the thing. We are not pessimistic people by nature, even me or Drac. We are sarcastic, but mm. we're British. That basically comes baked into our DNA. Um, basically, you cut us open, and like a stick of rock, we'll have sarcasm on one side and cynicism on the other. <laughs> but that doesn't mean we're necessarily pessimistic. Mm. What we're doing is we're talking about these things. The, the the thing is, these the solutions and the capabilities are actually there. So you have to deal with it. That there is a willful situation, a scenario where either money or some other peacetime argument is being used to not adopt them. Mm. And if the argument is we don't make it in this country, fine, buy it under the, uh, under license and build it in your own country. Mm. If that's what you have to do, want to do, do it. If we can yeah. do it for armoured vehicles, why can't we do it for guns? And let's face it, neither Orlikan nor Bofors were British or American. Neither was Hispania oh. Suzuya. <laughs> uh, they we used an awful lot of their weapons in World War Two. Um, this is the other thing: you only get really patriotic about weapon designs in peacetime. Mm. And let's face it: no, no one won a war by no one lost a war, I should say, by having too many guns, um, and or too heavy a caliber. No, and and ultimately, if if you do it right. Then you'll and say we don't even know what the next war is going to be. It could be China, it could be Russia, it could be, it could be Greece versus Turkey. It could be all sorts of interesting things. Um, but you you need to be able to objectively sail out or fly out or march out, depending on your flavor of armed forces, with the knowledge that you have the best equipment that your country could reasonably buy you not well we've got some equipment that our grandfathers were using and some equipment that the government lent lent us a couple of 20 quid notes for and a few prestige pieces with none of the supporting infrastructure because it looks flashy that's um, not that's you know. not how you win a war and but it, do it right, and the only war you won't win will be the literal apocalypse. Although, to be fair, given that what we've we've got plague, we've got locusts, we've got um, discontent in the streets. Anyone, anyone want to take anyone want to take to thirty to two odds on on the next on the next <laughs> conflict being the the sound of seven trumpets and the ride of four horsemen. Oh God! Uh, I, I will admit please there. Please don't say this. We've still got a good old forty-seven <laughs> days to go of twenty twenty track, and when we're recording mm. this, do not say that. 
I, I mean, I, w- I will concede that a twin 40 millimeter probably isn't going to do too much against the hosts of heaven, but that is kind of the outside what about contingency. The hosts of hell? I, I know you're fighting for the other side, but I'm worried about the ho- dealing the hosts of hell. <laughs> oh, you can shoot them. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Well, you have chaplains on board. If, if Warhammer 40K has taught me anything, having a chaplain and blessed ammunition is uh, is an excellent way of combating demons. Yes. Yes, it is. And most wardrooms have silverware, so if it's werewolves, you can rapidly repurpose it. This is what the Royal Navy has been preparing for. <laughs> it's really been ready for. Yeah. The apocalypse. Yes. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's just... We sit there, we talk about these things. And what you, the listeners might not realize is me, Jamie, and Drac, we have lots of long conversations, and which sometimes we record because we remember to turn on the recording. Um, and it's amazing how often when we're talking about it, the same thing starts to come round when we're looking at things and we're going, okay, why are they doing this again? Why? It's, you know, it, it, it's like you look at post-World War II, everyone's got three inches. Then they go get rid of the guns and they go, we're going to go missiles. And then they started off the process of the guns again. And you, they go, you could have just been Italian and gone, hang on. We started off this again with those. Yes, we're going to end up at the three inches. We'll just cut, cut straight to the chase. Now, myself, as much as I like the three inch as a weapon, I actually think the 40 millimeter is better for the next 20 odd years. And the reason is you can have multiple mounts far easier. You can carry more rounds. And I, whilst I do appreciate a good 76 millimeter gun, the moment you have the 76 millimeter gun on a escort, there is part of me which starts to wonder why you're having a five inch main gun, mm. because that really isn't much of an improvement, enough of improvement over a 76 to justify its existence. And let's face if you it, have out- multiple 76. Yeah. And let's face it, outside of large surface combatant, we're not going to be seeing any new hull designs coming out for that haven't already been at least partially filled in um, for a, a fair period of time. So any any system that we think about has to be at least mostly able to be retrofitted into existing hulls. I Type 26, which hasn't been built yet. Type 31, mm. which is being built and does have 40mm already scheduled for it. Uh, the future sur- future frigate for the US Navy, the future surface combatant, the Arley Burke, the new aircraft carriers, whether they be Queen Elizabeth or Gerald Ford. I do love the fact that Ford got a carrier named after him. I couldn't imagine a less carrier-type president than Ford, but we'll leave that to one side. I do wonder if there's a Ford logo somewhere on the ship. That would be hilarious. And if there isn't, shortly after running into a Royal Navy warship, there will be. Yeah, probably painted (laughs) on the side while they're not looking. Mm. Um, (laughs) Just beware of Royal Navy sailors with spray cans. They might well take Banksy to heart. <laughs> I hope that hasn't given them any ideas. I'm sure they had their own. I, I, I'm sure they, they, they're not going to need us for any of their ideas. But no, it's just... These things are being built. And you're hearing the same arguments. It's like, yeah, as we talk about, the arguments from the 1930s, you hear about all the time. This new system is going to erase all the future and you don't need it. How many times was the bomber will always get through brought up or all these things? And now when we're talking about bombers, how many nations have a currently producing bomber program? Not an upgrading system, but an actual factory producing heavy bombers. How many do you think, Drac? Um, Producing at the moment, I think it's just the Chinese. I know the yeah. Russians have got Pac DA coming along at some point, and the Americans have got whatever the. Uh, the Russians well, have been talking about Pac DA for a while. Mm. And and they I know they actually mentioned that. Uh, no. do, do, do it. But I know the I know the Americans want to replace the B one with something, and well, they have. I think in theory, their next generation bomb is supposed to replace the B one, the B two, and the B fifty two. But let's face it, we know the B fifty two is just going to outlast this as well. 
Yes, the, uh, the B-52 is the modern version of the swordfish. <laughs> Outlasting successes. They're, actually, mm. they're very proud. The US Air Force just announced that they're a grandfather, father, and son slash grandson have all graduated to being, have all been commanders of squadrons of B-52s. We're not talking pilots of B-52s. <laughs> We're talking all three sent enough time in the B-52 to get to squadron commander. Or more senior. I'm presuming the grandfather got to general at some point. The father yeah. in the photo does look like he's got general stars on him. So the son's got to go. And apparently there's a great granddaughter coming along as well. Four generations in the B-52. Oh, Lord, help mm -hmm. us. And I like the B-52. I can honestly say it's an excellent aircraft. Mm. But I, I am fairly sure my grandchildren might be saying it's an excellent aircraft. <laughs> kind of like the FB430 will probably be considered a very serviceable armoured personnel carrier by my grandchildren. And please note, I am nowhere near the point of children yet. Uh, <laughs> I, I am being honest about it. Me and my girlfriend, we love each other, but we haven't moved to that level by a margin yet. I'm old-fashioned. In the nicest way, there has to be cake in my future before there's going to be children. <laughs> I'm just thinking, a B-52 is going to be 70, a 70-year-old 70 design in a couple of years. Yeah. Um, it's double that, it's 140. <clears throat> the US is currently 244. I'm wondering whether I should drop down to the bookies tomorrow and put a, put a long odds bet on whether or not the B-52 will eventually get to a point where it is about half as old as the country that built it. Ooh. I mean, it's only got to last another 40, 50 years. Yeah. So if it gets to 100 and uh, 120 it'll have caught up with now but will you find any books so if it gets to about 100 if it gets up to 140 150 years old it'll probably be about half the age of the entire united states and then we'll end up in a realm in a in a, in a really weird period of history where the b-52 has been present for more of the united states history than it hasn't <laughs> The question is, again, I will pose it. Do you think any bookies is going to take that bet? Probably not. They don't like losing money. <laughs> <laughs> Especially not... Consider oh, good God. It's just... Be a good investment. The thing is, again, what are you going to replace the B-52 with? Because so, I'm sorry, the B-29-01 is not going to replace the B-52. Mm. The reason I can say that with certainty is because they are trying to design an aircraft which has the speed of the B-1 with the stealthiness of the B2. Which means it's going to be insanely expensive and bought, they're probably going to buy about, about six. Three. <laughs> well, you're, you're double mine, but yeah. Well, yeah, we've got to have three in reserve in case one of them crashes. Okay, yeah. Okay, so six it is. Yeah. So what are you going to replace the B52 with? Are you going to have to open up a line which is going to build a super heavy air transport which can double as your long as your long range missile bomb truck, a heavy bomb truck? Because that's the only option. And I know this is quite a random place for a naval podcast to go, but let's think about it because the B-52 has relevance to the naval maritime fight. Because when you're talking about a heavy air, an aircraft which is going to loiter with a significant proportion of munitions, there is a reason the Russians still have the bear in service. There is a reason the Chinese are building versions of the Badger. There is a reason the B-52 is still in service, because if you want to, the easiest way to add on to the air fight and the, one of the key skills for the air defense for, uh, forces is to take out the attack before it even comes. And the best way to do that is to have your own missile barrage ready to go. 
And yes, you have it on your ships and you might have your, be lucky enough to have an aircraft carrier with organic air power. But heavy bombers are going to be part of that process as well if you're a major power. If you're a sensible major power or even if you're a sensible medium power, they would be part of that process. Because me and Drac are pro-Navy, yes, but that doesn't mean we're going to sit here going, getting into the uh, aircraft, the aircraft carrier battleship versus heavy bomber argument. We're going to probably say you probably need both mm. if you're being sensible. Because they give you different but complementing capabilities. Yep. There's a, there's a reason, even back in the day when it was, when you didn't have air forces and you barely had navies, there's a reason nobody, nobody sane ever ran around with only one type of soldier. Yeah. And those sane soldier only ever carried one type of weapon. Yep. It's like whenever you're seeing on computer games, um, I, I really loved it when they finally, Stronghold, the one of the final versions of Stronghold, they actually produced an archer who carried a sword. Now, actually, archers would have carried a long knife and an axe, but we'll leave that to one side because those were, swords were far more expensive and far less common than they're often pictured for the medieval period. But an, no self-respecting archer would have wandered around with just their longbow. They wouldn't have because they're not stupid. They're going into an actual battle where people are going to be actively trying to kill them. Your longbow is good. Having another weapon to use if the enemy gets close, better. I know Legolas might use his longbow as a mm. form of quarter staff, but most normal people don't. He's an elf. Yeah, they're different. They're, they're, their drill with their longbows is disturbingly similar to musket drill and looks like a good way to break your bow, but we'll leave that mm -hmm. to one side. Oh, well. All right, well, I think that's probably a good time yeah. to uh, wrap everything up. Yes, uh, after a rant about B-52s and Legolas. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, everyone, yes. for listening. We hope you found this useful. Yeah, and... Uh... To those, to those of you out there who may be listening uh, aboard a ship or about to board a ship, I sincerely hope somebody higher up the food chain listens and gives you some extra firepower. <laughs> yes. And normal service will be resumed. Jamie will return. Mm. Don't worry. Uh, we, we have will not, be in fact, eaten Slight him. We, we have not made him, forced him to drink volumes of Iron Brew until he turns into another Iron Brew fiend. And shockingly enough, we're actually, we actually managed to stay vaguely on topic for most of this, considering that last time we ended up launching Erebus and Terra to Mars, which I, I don't think it was strictly naval policy. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Although we, there is actually a, another question appeared on my um, on my thing, which was, what, do you think HMS Thunderer would have been a good model for a pre-Dreadnought uh, on my list of... Um, topics on my patron and i have to admit i'm not going to get into that because i feel thunder is pretty much yours drac but mm -hmm. I, I i will while you're here say she could certainly have been interesting i'm not sure if anyone would have wanted side by side funds in the royal navy they would <clears> want them after each other because <clears> you would want the systems mounted in series because that would give you more likelihood of surviving an impact of enemy fire but yeah, there are some good things for him. I have got the t-shirt somewhere. All right, I will hit end record. Mm -hmm. uh, lost the button. There it is. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>